Blog Talk Radio. Yes, hello, and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm your host, Magdalena Ball, and I'm very pleased to welcome today's guest, Helen Townsend. Helen is the author of Above the Starry Frame, which was published by Macmillan this July. Hello, Helen. Welcome. Hi, Maggie. How are you? Very well, thanks. Um, just for our, our listeners today, tell us a little bit about your book, Above the Starry Frame. It's quite a departure for you, isn't it? It is quite a departure. It's, um, it's based on a, a family story, although it is written as fiction, and, um, but a lot of it follows the story of my great-grandfather, who was a... Uh, Emigrant from the Great Potato Famine in Ireland in 1848 in Hikarat, where he became a, a gold digger and did quite well. And it's really a story of migration and to the excitement of the gold fields. Mm. Now, um, can you read us just a, a brief passage from the book, just to get the the listeners um, involved in, in what we're talking about? Uh, William had a number of wives and um, so I'll just read you this passage about his first courtship. Um, William fired at the wonder of Bridget. She wanted him ambitious, she wanted him rich, she didn't want him too fancy, she didn't like his beard, she liked his cabbage tree hat, she thought he should have a gold watch. She wouldn't have him spit on the street. She might have spun him round and round and stood him on his head and wrapped him in ribbons and tied him with rope and dunked him in the creek and let him... but it Bridget that he wanted, and he could not let go of his wanting. Did you hear of the Scotty lass married to the Chinese, he asked. Can you believe it? It seemed like a simple subject that all on the goldfields agreed on, a subject that might give him respite. I can't, can believe it, Bridget said, looking at him with a challenge in her eye. She, poor girl, was with a child, an Englishman's child, and everyone ready to scorn her on account of that, never mind the Englishman at all. He ran away on account of being married, which he'd never seen worth his while to mention. And the celestial was like a brother to that woman, so kind she began to think he was better than the Englishman. So yes, I can believe the Scottish lass married the celestial. He was horrified. She was so contrary. They aren't like us at all, the celestials, he said, appealing to the common opinion. But he thought of his father's letter, berating his brother Robert for marrying Jane Candor. Marriage was a serious thing for Robert, with nothing behind him, dependent on father. But Jane had been pregnant like the Scotty lass. Would his father really thought it better for Robert to run off? They're a different race from us entirely, the Celestials. Heathens for a start. Not like us that they don't run off and leave a girl in waiting, maybe, said Bridget. I imagine there's plenty of Chinamen left a girl in distress, said William. And they pick over the mud when all the work has been done, he added lamely. It was... Just then to William, with their strange language and their long pigtails, they never fitted in with the rest, who were a diverse lot, being men of all nations and all religious religions, the Catholics, the Presbyterians, wealth messes, the Wesleyans, the Jews. Even the Muslim hawkers seemed less different from the Chinese. The Chinese settled and traded and did things others did, but they were not like them. They're not so different that I don't see everyone eating at John or looting house, said Bridget, or taking to the Chinaman's opium. I imagine, except for the pigtails, they're much like any man on a dark night. You wouldn't marry a Chinese, would you? 
I told you, I'm not marrying anyone at all. But despite her assertion, and despite his heat at her sticking up to the Scottish girl who had married the Celestial, which he could not reconcile, when they reached a place in the bush which was less, which was shaded and where the stream ran clear, she allowed him to kiss her in a way that nearly drove him wild. She allowed that she would accept his invitation to a dance for next month, leaving him so excited that he seemed to let Main Street, two doors from where his hotel was being built, to order himself a new suit. So that's um, just apart from um, the beginning of the book where um, William is settling into the goldfields and about to marry, about to. Uh, Thanks for that. I, I love Brittany. She's a terrific character. And I guess, um, you know, quite interestingly, that passage that you've chosen, um, it picks up one of the key things in the book, it doesn't it, about the, the whole notion about prejudice, prejudice and open-mindedness and, the, you know, the way in which those things kind of mingle with one another. If one of the... Um, William came from that pre-industrial Ireland, very poor, very oppressed, but because he was a Protestant, very quite conformist, and then he came into this this new world where there were Chinese and and uh, you know people from all over Europe, and at that time, because he was um, his pub was a meeting place for the men who. It was really buzzing with ideas, and so you sort of see a relaxation of that sort of pregnant. It's sort of interesting that as Ballarat grows, um, some of those uh, prejudices and divisions, particularly that Catholic Protestant one, um, sort of reasserts itself. And that was really interesting to me because Robert, had, because William had a Catholic brother, and so that's a constant theme in the book book of uh, how how open one can be and you know how much family matters how much belief matters and I think mm. we often forget that religion was such a defining thing in the 19th century it wasn't matter if you choose your religion that is your religion and that is who you are sure and then even the you know the whole notion of the sort of Irish versus the English and you know the impact that that ultimately had on the you know the whole concept of democracy in Australia that that led to the the Eureka uprising Yes, well, the Irish were very involved in Eureka. There were a lot of a lot of other nationalities, um, but yes, the Irish were were sort of pivotal, particularly um, in the miners who 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 were at the stockade. There were a lot of Irish, and many of the, the, those killed were Irish. And so, I think that sort of feeling of resistance against the establishment um, was absolutely pivotal there, and a very strong part of. Um, Australian history and one of the interesting things when I was researching the book is I went back to Ireland and I had a look at I actually found the place where William had come from which was a very poor stone house and um, you could just see the poverty there although it was extraordinarily beautiful and I was very moved but then I walked around the landlord's house and there were gardens and there were swans on the lake and there was a big wall and um, I had been very familiar with Ballarat from the time I was child because I'd had family there and in Ballarat there's a, a big lake and there are gardens but they are there for the common man and I guess that was one of the the achievements of the Victorian city that um, there was a democratization of, of that sort of 
um, access to that sort of beauty education, not entirely because class systems remained in place and there were all sorts of inequalities, but there was a, there was a move, we can have this, but uh, you know, we don't have to bow down to the Lord and have that deference continually. And I also love the way, and you know, again, picking up on the passage you chose to read, the way the women um, seem, some of the women, certainly um, you know, less so later on in, in some of um, William's later wives, but certainly Bridget you know, seems to cut right through all of those distinctions you know, and, and sees the parallels, the parallels between you know, the differences between the celestials and um, I guess you know, what we could maybe call Westerners. Um, yes. You know, I think that was Catholic the- versus, you know, that the whole, the whole thing, she just cuts right through and says, you know, we're people. That's right, she does indeed, and I think that I think that was so characteristic. It was very interesting for me because when I started on the book, William did have these three wives, and I thought, what will I do with them? And Bridget, particularly, I knew very little about except that she had nursed the, the wounded at Eureka. Um, and I, it, the more research I did on women in general, it seemed to me that those those times of the gold rushes was a freedom for women, and women could reinvent themselves. Um, in a way, by the time we get to the third wife, Julia, respectability and propriety are much more restrictive of women. And I think that's very, it's very interesting. The society had matured, but in a way it had also narrowed. And, um, I think those times, you know, when you, when you've got a lot of, um, well, a lot of them were young people, um, they were coming from, a Europe that had been radicalised with the 1848 revolution, um, that you can nothing in the way of that. But then there's not quite the same imposition. But later, with that Victorian city, and you know we've got to have everything properly done, and we've got to have the masons going around, you know, opening buildings and that sort of thing. That, that there is a sort of tightening of that, and uh, you know there's a there's a sort of sadness of that in the story. Mm. And you pull that out, um, you know, so beautifully, and and it's it's, you know, it's it's quite nice to watch the progression of wives and and the differences between them as as time goes on. But you mentioned that the letters have always been known of in your family, um, in the, the front and back matter that you include. But what what brought you to the point of transcription? You know, where you actually said, okay, I'm going to take these letters and I'm going to turn them into something concrete. Well, I think it was the actual transcription that that made me realise how beautiful and how powerful the language was and also um, just the... I had, um, I suppose, starting from my teens, I'd read bits of the letters and there'd been various attempts in the family. There are over 50 of them altogether, spanning 40 years. And as we read them and as we transcribed them, my sister was helping me with this, um, we realised not only there were just some wonderful phrases like above the starry frame actually mm-hmm. comes from one of the letters um, where William's father says we may not meet in this life again but we may meet above the starry frame. But there's that all the power of that language but there, there was also a story emerging and Eliza, his younger sister was the centre of that story because you know we have the death of both of William's parents uh, we have other children migrating from that family and I think um, to see Ireland as a country from which people emigrated that sort of leeching of people that that aloneness one left behind and keeping the faith and um, 
her story was a very, very sad story. Um, and she kept that very strong, very traditional religious faith, which got her through that. Uh, but I think there's, um, you know, in Australia, we um, often have the view that one is lucky to be an immigrant to this country, and that has certainly been true for many people. But I think we often forget the other side of the of the, of the country that has been left and um, the the families that have been left behind. And the eventual breaking of family, because it is inevitable, even though I went back to Ireland and and I saw that, um, you know, that, that family which had been there for so long uh, no longer exists. Yeah, it's, and, you know, I, I love the way Eliza and William in some ways parallel one another. I know Eliza keeps writing and William effectively stops, but it's lovely to... to and painful in a way too to watch that gap opening up between them and you know seeing each one and and the way you move in the narrative between them um seeing each one on the other side of the gap you know trying to reach out but not being able to to find you know that ocean getting bigger the ocean does get bigger doesn't it and i think there's there's that sort of sense of the of family is so important and the love is still there and but in fact you know, William left when he was a boy of 18 or a young man of 18 and so she really didn't know him and she didn't know the life that he would have here and of course he only imagined back to that life that she had and um, you know once his parents were gone and it, it became a, a much dimmer uh, sort of memory um, and maybe that's not as much now but I spoke to some contemporary migrants and they said, yes, you know, there are things apparent because it just seems too complicated. And, um, you know, there are, there are times I haven't gone back when I should have and th- those sort of things. So there is just, there is just a great sadness. And I, I, it, I came away from the story, I think there's a great bravery in immigration. And mm. I think there's also an endurance in staying. And um, those were two of the things that were very important to me. And I guess the way the actual ocean becomes a virtual ocean, you know, a virtual gap. But I, um, I think to a certain extent, and, you know, I'd like to just talk a little bit about that, the relationship between fact and fiction, um, because it's, it's perhaps more fuzzy in your book than, than in many other books. Um, it's certainly more explicit. But do you feel to a certain extent, you talked about the way families break apart with migration, but do you feel to a certain extent that in some ways you've actually brought the family together through you know, this book, that you've actually created something that, that's linked them back? Uh, I think that's true. Um, certainly I found a lot of second cousins that didn't <laughs> So in that sense, but I, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a certain irony in it because, as you say, a lot of it is invented, and I make that very clear at the end of the book because I don't want to say that I'm writing history, although, you know, a lot of it is based on on fact, but there is that sort of thing. And in one point, um, William goes down to Main Street in um, in Ballarat, and he buys some dining room chairs from a brothel that's closing closing down. Well, my husband and children now refer to our dining room chairs, which came from that pub in Ballarat, as the chairs from the brothel in Main Street. So, in a way, I have I have created that story for the family, and I've linked it back, and I. To Ireland, and I went with my sister. It was. I hope that this story does 
help not only my family but other families link back to that sort of sense that you know they are just people on a family tree you know these people lived and breathed and felt and were part of a story sure and but you know i i think um, the public certainly seems to have um a strong the reading public a strong penchant for you know what really happened but I suppose to a certain extent it doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, you know, even if you were writing history, you'd probably have to invent something. I mean, there's just so much material out there and, and the rest really becomes a bridge that we create from fact to fact. Yes, I mean, this this book, I suppose, rejoices of the new name of Faction, which initially I reacted against, but I actually think it's quite, it's quite good and I, I think, you know, as I have done, I have an obligation to readers to say, well, this was, you know, um, this bit was true and and these invented. And I invented Bridget entirely um, and, you know, I invented a lot of William because I didn't have his letters going back. Um, yes, yeah, so I think it is inevitable that one will do this. If, you, if you're working on, you know, very serious historical scholarship, you wouldn't do this, but you wouldn't choose to tell the story in that way. Um, and I think as long as you, you know, do the, the background research and um, really, you know, look at the background, and I don't think that Bridget was an impossible character. I think that, you know, there could have been a woman sitting in a hotel bed room upstairs and, and reading Charles Darwin and getting excited by it um, and that to me makes sense um, and she could have had these ideas and that those sort of conflicts between Catholic and Protestant I've done a lot of research on and I think it's, it's you know, it was interesting to me to probably take it a step further and think well how in this particular individual would that would that work out what what would he feel about his brother becoming a Catholic how would he sure. react to that and probably still surprisingly, I think, if you were writing back then, but, you know, it's still topical. Yes, it is still topical. I mean, a lot of people have talked to me about that. And, you know, they said, well, you know, my mother was Catholic and she married, you know. <laughs> and so, and certainly, I think, it's, I think it's interesting, too, that it is probably, I mean, when, when I was growing up, there was certainly that Catholic-Protestant division, um, and it played out political, politically through, you know, the DLP and... Um, the ALP in Australia and that split, um, I think it is much less powerful now. But, you know, in a sense, we are looking at um, Islam as that other religion now in many ways. That, That's right. Um, and, but even in, in Catholics um, struggling against Darwinism, I mean, still there are issues, um, you know, that are being played out. Yes, there are issues. There are issues that are being played out, and there, are, you know, there are people who 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 still sort of have, oh, you know, a Catholic that's somehow different from from this. Um, I certainly think it's much less, um, but it's something in human nature that we're very capable of adopting this. You know, this is different. You know, Protestants are different, Catholics are different, Muslims are different, Jews are different, and. Um, of course, we've seen the consequences of, of that sort of sectarianism, which is never um, edifying to behold. And, you know, it's often very savage and, and has had terrible consequences at times in history. Sure. Now, Eureka Stockade, um, you know, when you visit Ballarat, and it's not that long since I've been to Ballarat, it's more than just past history. You know, it's, um, as you know very well, it, it still seems quite alive down there. The trail, Sovereign Hill, 
the Blood on the Southern Cross show, um, even the buildings, you know, they've all retained their historic character. Did you struggle to maintain, I guess, you know, your own original story in the face of such a strong tourist vision of the events of the stockade, or was it helpful? In a way, it was helpful. You know, I had spent a lot of time as a child in Ballarat, and people then, there was one Eureka monument, um, and people then didn't talk a lot about Eureka, and there was a sort of slight shame about it, um, that, you know, this has been this dodgy rebellion. And my grandfather, who was William's youngest son, had always said, um, you know, it was at his pub that the leaders of Eureka met. But it wasn't really a matter of the sort of pride that it is now, and it certainly wasn't a tourist attraction. In fact, when I was there, people, as a child, people used to the art gallery and give them to visiting dignitaries. Now the Eureka flag is beautifully preserved and it's in the art gallery and it's just a, I mean it just makes my heart beat faster every time I go there. I think one of the wonderful things about Eureka there is that there are a lot of people debating about it. There are a lot of people saying no it was about this or it was about this or no, 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 they they weren't radicals, they were just complaining about tax or they were just doing this or they were just... So there's a very strong as well as the tourist element, which I think has generally been very well done. Mm. I think there's actually, um, you know, it's it's very accurate as far as it goes and the events that are replayed there actually happen and the buildings are all right. But I think um, I did immerse myself in the local history community and sort of took on these views about Eureka and, and what it meant. And I certainly don't think it was just about... Um, a tax rebellion. I think it was about a thunder, um, for liberty, a, a feeling about how people should be treated. And I think that was really very important. Um, and, um, yeah, so I guess, you know, it doesn't, um, it doesn't go with all the history that's coming out about Eureka, but it, um, you know, the stuff, I wrote I feel I feel comfortable about and um, I think it all all that's been written about Eureka serves to inform the tourist experience I mean you can go there and have a very superficial experience but you can go there and think oh yes this would be where this and this happened yeah mm. it's, it's certainly the actors seem to they're very good they seem to really get into the roles and uh, you know it seems to be very um, historically managed rather than managed on commercial grounds Yes, yes, and you know there are things that have, you know, that do date from the time of Eureka, like the, the Diggers Memorial and uh, Grave of John Humphrey, who plays a part in my book, and the Soldiers Memorial, mm-hmm. and you know those things up at the old um, graveyard there are, are significant too. And the sense of it being, you know, critical, the birthplace of democracy, and uh, you know the beginnings of modernisation and um, and modern ideas and so forth. Yes, which you pick up in the book. Yes, yes, and I think that was very um, a very vital period in Australia and a, a very important period. And I think um, you know sometimes you know Eureka's just dismissed as this little rebellion that was defeated. But in fact, it wasn't. Re- it was defeated in the the battle they lost, but in a sense, they won the war. They won a very solid victory. Mm. Now, this is a huge change from some of your other work, although you've done nonfiction before but is this a complete change or do you feel that there are some threads that link this book to others that you've worked on before and maybe a common theme that you find yourself 
coming back to regardless oh well maybe I'm, I'm always obsessive you know I'm always I like families and 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 relationships and um, so it's got that theme I think um, probably um, in some ways though it is a leap forward for me it's probably um, a slightly more literary book than I've done before and probably I'm more interested in um, that sort of area at the moment yeah so, um, so do, do you think fans might expect to see, um, um, could expect to see a little bit more biography and uh, you know other other research-based um, books coming from you? Yes, I'd love I'd love to do. Um, I'm just I'm sort of working on three projects and I'm going to choose one of them. But um, I'm certainly interested in biography and I'm certainly interested in this area of historical fiction. That's that's great. Now, um, did you find yourself staying true? You, you obviously while you were transcribing the letters. You must have had some, I guess, initial image of these relatives of yours. Or did you find, as you were um, pulling it all together in your imaginings, that you know the actual way that you viewed your own relatives changed and became something different? I think uh, because I had spent a lot of time at Ballarat, and I'd spent a lot of time, you know, as a kid walking around Ballarat with with my grandparents, um, that I had, you know, I had that in mind as Ballarat and. But as I came into the letters and um, I saw there was a sort of, I suppose, a different... I saw that they, they, they had come from a very close family and a very much more religious family. Um, I mean, my, parents, my grandparents were both um, Presbyterians, but they weren't devout. So it was, they had come into a much more secular society. Um, so it was very interesting reading those really getting involved in that world and in a way of thinking that in a sense is a bit pre-modern because Ireland wasn't industrialised. It, it was it was very much the family, the landlord, the community um, and that is so powerful in, in those letters and um, it was interesting to see how, how it transposed to what was then a a sparkling and modern and growing city that Ballarat was then. I mean, we think of Ballarat as a historical city, but then it was sort of like this little jewel of the modern city um, and William's pride in that. And I think there's a sort of sense, particularly towards the end of the book, that he feels, yes, I've made my life here, I'm part of this, but it is not the sort of depth of community that I had, I had come from. Sure. And it's, I guess, so much bigger. So much bigger, uh, and and so many more influences um, coming into. I mean, I think Ireland, until relatively recently, many of those rural areas were so isolated. Whereas, you know, Ballarat and um, you know, it comes across in the books. They ha- they actually imported ice from America, from the American lakes, which seems extraordinary now. But they had books coming in. They had magazines coming in. Um, you know, some of the entertainment on the goldfields was very lowbrow, but some of it were, were the best, you know, singers and poets and musicians from from Europe, and and so in a sense it was very cosmopolitan. So that's sort of interesting for Australians who tend to, to think of ourselves as very insular. We have a lot of time left, but um, I, I'd love to just very briefly talk about the title. Um, I found it in the Iliad. 
um, where they, there's actually a line that says, say muses the starry frame, how first the navy blazed with Trojan flame. Um, and also it was a common church song. So yes, it was a common part of the, um, I must say, I, the title came from the letters, and I, I looked and looked for it, and I, I must have looked in the wrong place because I, 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 on the net because I didn't find it, and I, I'm very pleased to have that reference to the Iliad because I'd only got as far as, as the uh, Presbyterian Psalms, and um, there's a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful Presbyterian hymn that uh, talks about above the starry frame. Mm. Um, and Let's confess thy glorious name. Yes, yes, and there's that. But I think that you know, in the book that um, William's father, old Joseph. And um, I just think it's a wonderful thing that um, that sort of image that there is greater thing above all which we will meet, um, and that despite this physical separation, um, I mean I think William's father took it quite literally that we will meet in heaven above the starry frame. But I think there is that that sort of um, larger context of you know. Above us all, there, you know, we we have connections. Yes, beyond, um, I guess, beyond the limitations of this life, even. Yes, beyond the limitations of this life, we are, in a sense, connected. And and of course, they have met again in your book. <laughs> they have met again in my book. Yes, <laughs> indeed. And you, you clearly have a, a soft spot for Eliza because um, you know you give her equal time, and uh, and she comes through as quite a. I guess quite a rich character. I suppose you had more information about her than anyone else. I did have information about her, and um, I had a lot from the letters. I could uh, guess that character and um, the brother Joseph, who also stayed in Ireland. But I think also there was a lot for me in going back to Ireland and walking those um, walking those roads and looking at the hedgerows and um, looking at the distance to the church and uh, looking in the graveyards and that that really um, gave me a sense because of course they did walk everywhere and mm. um, that was how they got around and, and that sort of sense of being so close to the ground and um, so close to the earth I think is, is, was quite a feature for me with Eliza. Mm, that's wonderful. So um, we're just about out of time but um, the very last question, um, you mentioned three things that you're working on. Can you give us a hint as to what direction you might be going in for the next book? Um, well, I'm, I'm thinking of a, um, I'm thinking of a story about childhood at the moment, not a children's book but a childhood um, and it sort of harks back to an earlier book of mine um, called uh, The Baby Boomer's Childhood but this is uh, which was a non-fiction book, but I'm actually thinking of um, doing something as fiction, mm. partly based on my own experiences and, and partly fictional, as this one is. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you, Helen. Um, that's it. The show has just been broadcast live and will shortly be available in our archives, all of which are available here at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash compulsive reader and from the Compulsive Reader website at www.compulsivereader.com in podcast form. Our next guest will be Justin Lowe, who will be talking about his novel, The Great Big Show. So that's it. Thank you very much, everybody, for being here today. Thank you, Helen. And Thank you, Maggie. That was great. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.